Yo, what's up? Welcome to new episode of Politicore. Uh, I'm Dylan. I'm Evan. Hey, and uh, today uh, on the on the show, uh, Evan and I are, are joined by uh, Dr. Sean Parson, professor of uh, politics, international affairs, specializing in Marxist and anarchist political theory, as well as homelessness studies um, at Northern Arizona University. I think I already said that. Doesn't matter. Um, to kind of talk about the uh, the ongoing crisis of homelessness, housing, and gentrification, and these are you know again these are these are all hot button topics within the punk and hardcore subculture, but these are even hot button topics um, just broadly speaking. Uh, you know, you want to incite a family dinner into a riot, you can bring up any one of these things, um, and so I think that the episode is is long, but uh, Sean offers us uh, uh, just an insanely good analysis about how we should think about homelessness, housing, and what we can do to uh, push back against developers. And in, in the as neoliberalism is slowly transitioning to neo feudalism. <clears throat> Evan, anything you want to add? No, that's uh, very well covers it. I really really enjoyed the conversation i hope it'll just be the first of many uh yeah we're putting the politic and politicore on this one yeah yeah the last few episodes have been all core this one is is polita so <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh again if any for those of you listening if you have ideas if you have people you want us to, to try and talk to you can uh let us know we're we're pretty approachable. Evan is the Evan is far more approachable, so you can just let him know, I guess. But um, but I'm shy, it. so if it's in person, I'm going <laughs> to be awkward for about a minute or two. It's that's all right. The, the, what's important is that it gets done. Um, yeah, I guess the one thing I would note too is just uh, you know, I met Doctor Parson uh, when I think I was mm, 19 or 20. Very impressionable, very angry, uh, young punk person trying to like figure out why the fuck why the fuck did i go to college for um he really helped me center my thinking on how to actually uh resist and oppose capitalism uh as often as possible and he's someone who i think if you are a hardcore or a punk person trying to navigate this minefield of just that we all live in um, his work can really help guide you and help you direct your anger accordingly. Um, so, uh, we're, I'm insanely proud of this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is a, a excellent episode as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So i um, yeah, it's not going to take any more time again, get at us if you have any, uh, anything you want to say, but uh, until next time, everyone, thanks again. What's going on, Evan? Not a whole lot. Keeping yeah. things, keeping things moving over here in Flagstaff. Hell yeah, yeah. Same, same up in my in my hiding place that I prefer not to say over recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, bunk, bunker. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, definitely. I, for everybody who like listens to this, um, I'm big time doomsday prepper. Oh yeah. Which I feel like, uh, actually, I'm meaning to tell you this, Evan. 
uh, I have, you know, I'm not a big social media person. I got like 211 followers on Instagram. I follow like 300, you know, I just stay in touch with like people I know. Since we started doing this, I I lose followers. I'm just like losing followers. <laughs> to what do you attribute that? I your just... your l- l- charming personality? <laughs> Clearly, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I think you and my mom are, might might be the only two people that feel that way about me. Uh, yeah, like people who I was like people who people who I uh, thought I was like legitimately cool. <laughs> like after we started doing this i was just like oh okay Mm, when i see you you know what i mean i'm gonna have a we're gonna have a conversation what's up you know yeah i think suddenly hearing our voices and getting to know our personalities has pulled back the curtain on maybe how corny we actually are yeah yeah the my my mysterious like the, the mysterious dude who plays guitar in pig city who has no social media that's completely come undone that, that well curated social media presence has uh been foiled by this whole process yeah yeah so yeah if so it makes you feel any better i have more than once uh had to unfollow people on instagram because i follow the maximum number of people which is 7500 so if you want to feel like less pitiful um my ratio of followers to following is uh like simp simp level <laughs> well i that, that i appreciate you putting uh putting that in for in perspective for me um i guess yeah i i can rant about uh, everybody who's unfollowed me recently again i know who you are and <laughs> i know when i will see you again that's all i'm gonna say um but uh, yeah, it looks like our, our guest is on. Sean, what's up? Hey, Dylan. Hey, Evan. How's it going? Be- better now, you know. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing. Uh, I think brings brings people uh, in a good mood, like talking about uh, homelessness and gentrification. So <laughs> that's my, that's in my experience in life. Yeah, definitely. We're we're boy, we're, boy. Do we have a big one for you today? No, uh, yeah. but Sean. Do you want to uh, you want to take a second and introduce yourself and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm I, I teach I'm a professor at Northern Arizona University um, in Flagstaff, Arizona, on uh, the Political Science and uh, Sustainable Communities program. Um, I'm a political theorist, and my work tends to be on environmental political theory, anarchist and Marxist political thought, and uh, social movements. And that's kind of the work I generally do. Um, yeah, I have a book out based off my dissertation on food not bombs in the Bay Area. Um, I have a couple ed- edited books, like one on um, collecting writings on the Earth Liberation Front, um, another one on science fiction and political activism. So yeah, just kind of a wide range of stuff I'm interested in and like been involved also in like I mean, I got into politics through the punk scene, as I think a lot of folks have. And like, I'm one of like now many kind of folks in academia who came through that community and, you know, are still doing kind of radical work, kind of at least partially connected to it, you know? Yeah, I do. I think that, uh, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I don't know, because sometimes from, from where I'm sitting, I see, I see people connecting the the genre to any sort of uh radical politics less and less i have i've gotten multiple messages uh, as of recently but people telling me that politics and punk don't mix 
Um, and I did, had no idea what to even say to that. So I said, That's so um, weird. <laughs> yeah, I just remember like going to punk shows. Like I grew up in San Diego, so I'd go to like the Shea Cafe and there'd be flyers around for like Funa Bombs for like Mumia Bujamal stuff with stuff related to border violence and pretty much every band that was playing was, you know, a bunch of anarchist punks, like who were always super political. Um, you know, I remember like us having to like push off and fight off like neo-Nazis when they tried to get into spaces. It was like everything about it was always so political. Like, so it's so funny that that's, I mean, it's not funny. It sucks that it's changed at least a little bit. Yeah. I think, um, I think for, for whatever reason, uh, the, uh, with kind of the rise in, in, uh, what am I trying to say? The, the fact that like a, that most 17 year olds can condense capital in like 150 characters or less in a tweet, <laughs> I think it's kind of like led to uh, a lot of just apolitical bands. Like, what do we need to sing about anything for? Everybody already knows this. Um, or that, yeah. that certainly seems to be an attitude that I pick up on again, more with hardcore bands, less with the more like punk and D beat and power violence ones, but with hardcore specifically, I see it a lot. I guess there might have always been like kind of a weird apolitical side for some hardcore bands too. Yeah. It was, again, it's more yeah. broy stuff. Like the broy or the less political often. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and a big shock that has not changed mm -hmm. at all since since the uh, the inception of the of the genre. And of bros. <laughs> the inception of bros is the title of my next novel. <laughs> It's a it's a spiritual sequel to Confederacy of Dunces. <laughs> the Inception of Bros. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, everyone, welcome to Politicor. Um, on today's episode, and as you might have guessed, we have uh, we've got Dr. Sean Parson on. He's going to talk a little bit about his uh, new book. Um, additionally, the the main topic of this uh, episode is we're going to talk about. Uh, homelessness and gentrification and hopefully the right to the city a little bit um chances are if you're into hardcore punk music you live in a city where all of these issues are inescapable even if you try to put the blinders on there's a good chance you you can't get away from it so um uh, especially in the city i live in I, I see nothing but misdirected anger um sometimes even within myself when i walk out my front door so um yeah. Well, definitely uh, looking forward to hopefully, Sean, not to put too much pressure on you. Really, really looking forward to, to having you uh, help us kind of navigate this because it is uh, like we talked about before we started recording. So fucking complicated. Yeah. And it's now literally everywhere. You don't even have to be in a big city to be dealing with like gentrification and a crisis of houselessness. It's like I, I've been joking with friends everyone's being gentrified out of their neighborhood, but no one knows where anyone's going. Yeah. Right? Like there's no like magnet place for all these people who are being forced out or relocating to It's Just like people are just disappearing. It seems. Yeah. I anticipate that. Um, I'm, I'm sure you'll get to this, but um, I anticipate that with what appears to be an increasing housing crisis that, um, Six months ago, I thought it was going to make an about face, but instead seems to be moving full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. um, these issues will become 
I, I, if I'm being optimistic, more important um, and more relevant and uh, so, something that will drive more people to seek this form of literacy as white people start being gentrified out of their neighborhoods, um, yeah. and, which seems to be uh, happening just about everywhere, especially I'm, I'm seeing it a lot in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, college owns across the board, but yeah, I mean, and it's so weird because I think a lot of people expected the pandemic to maybe make the housing crisis a little less of a crisis as the economy kind of tanked for a while, but it did the exact opposite. It's such a, I mean, there's reasons for it, but it's, it's frustrating. It's just like the housing crisis keeps getting worse. I, I think it's going to be one of I mean, I'm hoping it's one of the straws that breaks that camel's back. Mm -hmm. Like with like student debt, with medical debt and with that, it's just like increasingly making life damn near impossible. I think that, again, if I'm being optimistic and I think generally I tend to be uh, just as a survival tool, um, I think that just as you said, medical debt, student debt, housing debt, housing crisis um much like the war on drugs the fact that these things are now equal opportunity uh offenders where suburban white folks uh you know congressmen's children whatever are being affected by these things yeah these are really equal opportunity um blights on uh the average person in society where the middle class is becoming nearly non-existent it's going to be something that you can't really brush under the rug anymore and my hope is just as the war on drugs became a oh we've got a, a, an opioid crisis um so let's start working toward treatment instead of jailing of course only specific people but my hope yeah. is that now that this is affecting people at least uh, adjacent to people in power, um, I'm hoping that it will be something that we can start addressing more seriously. I hope so too. I mean, I think that's part of the reason to also center and keep it political because I fear that with the way that everything works, it's also a tool for like the ultra far right to co-opt it. And mm. I've already heard people talking about, you know, quote unquote, the housing crisis being a result of illegal immigration. Or whatever oh. the so and you're just like, no, no, not at all. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. But those narratives just su are super effective, especially for people who are looking, who are angry, but have no analysis of how shit works. You know, it's like an easy answer to just be like, yeah, it's immigrants. It's um, whatever <laughs> who are causing this, not, you know, the entire system of capitalism. I think that's one more reason to try and promote this kind of literacy, even if it is Dylan losing us uh, Instagram followers um, <laughs> is because learning this history, this sort of blame the immigrant mentality is the same thing that the Willie Lynch letter was doing, where instead of getting the enslaved people on the plantation to be mad at the, at the enslavers, you try and get them mad at the people who are living in the house, the enslaved people living mm -hmm. in the house or at the women, or at the people with different hair texture. Um, exactly. The drive and conquer is such an effective technique, and people fall for it all the time. Yeah.
I just checked. We just lost another follower. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean that's fine. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it's it, we didn't it's, want him anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is. It is what it, it is. What it is. I uh, I had a feeling that would happen because again, like again, for a genre that fancies itself to be the uh, paragon of progressive thinking, it's like barely left of center and usually gets upset when anybody actually wants to talk about these sort of things unless we're unless all of our episode titles have something to do with blast beats <laughs> yeah yeah which maybe that's the that's the way is just find a way to have a blast beat um like joke in the title for everything blast blast beats with bakunin yeah exactly perfect i could see him being a good drummer oh yeah with that beard, <laughs> it'd be probably hard to get him to the show on time. Probably- <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Hey, like, look, guys, the clock—it's just—it's just a tyrannical force made up by capital owners <laughs> to just force us to work on time. I, be even I don't care what him, our set time is. Like, it'd be even harder <laughs> to get him past security because he fully looks like um, he did not wash for the gig. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> um, but he still might have walked a little bit more than most of the people in Leftover Crack. So. <laughs> yeah, hand, yeah, hands hands down. Um, <laughs> although, to be fair, there's one member of Leftover Crack where I'm pretty sure showers regularly now, but he uh, left the band recently. So. Sell out. Oh. Sell out. Yeah. Poser. There you go. There Was you that go. the reason? <laughs> uh, nothing that I feel comfortable saying <laughs> while this is recording. <laughs> <laughs> All the members of leftover crack who are following us are going to unfollow us. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, Evan, listen, we're on we're on thin ice here with our with our with our metrics. All right, we gotta we we gotta turn this ship around. <laughs> yeah, who else can we target to make sure that you lose as many Insta followers? Uh, I mean, there's 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 a handful of sacred cows that we could we could attack, but. Uh, we're not going to do that because we're classy. Yeah. Instead, we're gonna we're gonna talk we're gonna yeah. talk about uh, homelessness and uh, Sean's Sean's yeah. new book. Um, Sean, I want to start off, if that's okay with you, by uh, reading a small section, uh, yeah. a, a small paragraph of your book that I thought uh, really uh, encapsulated your kind of central thesis here. Um, if that's okay, yeah. of course, with you, essentially. Uh, from uh, page 17 on uh, Cooking Up a Revolution. It says, The radical homelessness politics discussed in this book is rather complex. Groups like Food Not Bombs are openly hostile to capitalism and see the commodification of food and housing as being a form of violence perpetrated on the poor, as, as we will see in more detail in the next chapter. This systemic analysis is combined with a deep commitment to respect and care for individuals. The politics that develops here understands and acknowledges that the homeless are both victims of capitalism and political actors making decisions. As such, radical homeless politics is not predicated on fixing the homeless or moralizing and ah, pathologizing (laughs) homelessness addiction, citizenship, or other uh, geographies of survival. Instead, a radical homelessness politics seeks to fight against the structural institutions that commit violence against the poor while empowering the poor to be autonomous political actors. To put it another way, the goal is to not get all homeless out of tent cities and off the streets, but to create a world where all can live, survive, and make the decisions that they think 
is best for them, even if that means living on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good overview of the whole book. So we're good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the reason why that obviously it caught my eye early on when I was when I was thumbing through your book because I you know I've tipped, since since leaving the since leaving the confines of academia I've pretty much started running with much more socialist and Marxist types who often want to point to more Scandinavian countries right oh look they've completely eradicated homelessness here no one lives on on the street here so I think. Uh, mm -hmm. with your 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 claim to say uh may the goal isn't to get them off the street at all really it's to make sure that people feel like uh autonomy and can live the way they want to live i think that that right off the bat not only makes marxists uncomfortable but again you're you're well off liberal types who are like just who basically like their their conservative parents come out of them every time they see a tent totally um, i mean there's like this weird sense that um all homeless people don't want to live on the street. And, you know, most of them don't because of the violence and the laws. It makes it harder. But there's a lot of people who just don't want to deal with the way that society is structured and would much rather like the freedom of a more nomadic lifestyle. And it seems so absurd to just be like, nope, you can't have that. Like that's, that's criminalized too. <laughs> um, and I feel like we often forget that people make decisions. And some of them are decisions we don't agree with and that's totally fine you know and especially marxists and liberals like they they definitely want to fix when sometimes there's nothing really broken with the person <laughs> that yeah that's i mean again i i'm i'm extremely guilty of that i'm always like you know whenever i see these these things i'm always like oh there's totally a way we can make sure that like all this not only gets cleaned up, but all these people go somewhere that is uh, uh, not a jail cell. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I often fail to even think about the fact that, like, well, maybe a couple of them just really wanted to do this, you know? I mean, not the majority, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Again, especially, uh, again, especially where I live, it's, it's, it's very clear that that's not what the majority yeah. would be. But I've met like homeless folks who are, you know, who literally dropped out of society for legitimate reasons that they just didn't feel comfortable fit into. It were really, like, they enjoyed the that lifestyle. They loved hopping trains and they loved, you know, like camping and they loved never being settled in a place, you know. And I can't blame them. Yeah, we hear kind of a lot about. Uh, you know about this issue and ultimately the thing that ends up happening whether you live in a city that's run by like moderate liberals or whether you mm -hmm. it's run by you know uh hardline conservatives with homelessness specifically the the result is kind of almost always the same mm -hmm. it ends up getting criminalized or in some cases the goal is to like just kind of pretend it isn't there and just shuffle them around the city so like you know, in certain mm -hmm. months, they're away from the touristy definition, uh, the, the touristy parts of, of the city. And then certain months, they're, they, they're allowed to go back to it. Yeah. Yeah. That seems right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was interesting to me is um, the, uh, you talked about the neoliberalist uh, approach to resolving both under, I think you specifically cited Reagan and Clinton as being 
kind of yeah. the major policy offenders of this, but the solution in their eyes to homelessness on the street was a, a primarily paternalistic one um, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of, in order to afford or maintain housing programs or, or residency in a housing program, there had to be a, like a consistent proving of one's worth, um, approving of one's uh, mm, subscription to the tenets of that particular program. Um, and that to me was interesting because it sort of fit with the paternalism that I see uh, in the aforementioned enslaver mindset of um, that's the, at least at the time was the primary argument for slavery was, yeah. hey, essentially uh, four, three hots and a cot, right? They were getting, they're feeding them, housing them, can't be that bad. Mm -hmm. Slavery is working for these folks who can't really take care of themselves. Not to mention the, the primary foreign policy mindset of um, any sort of, if it's not involving sending weapons there um, to, I mean, detonating weapons there, it involves uh, kind of colonizing and trying to uh, get the people of that particular country to a more American mindset through the same sort of um, moral policing from our perspective. Yeah, I think that's completely right. I mean, I think the thing that overlaps most liberals and conservatives in the U.S. is, I mean, in the end of the day, they have like a core of liberal values, like in the philosophic political theory sense. And with that, there's generally a sense of like what the ideal citizen is. And that's like a racialized, gendered figure. But like that, the homeless person clearly is not able to take care of themselves. So therefore, they're not you know, a good citizen. They can't be a citizen. They can't be in control of their lives because they can't even get a house. They can't even do this. And so I think that's where the overlap with the slave is, right? The slave was the anti-citizen. And so they had to be taken care of because if you said, oh, they can take care of themselves, that gets rid of the main justification for enslavement. Mm, like, mm -hmm. like the reason they're slaves is because they're not qualified to be an American citizen. You know, the reason and same with the homeless, the homeless are folks who are who are clearly not capable of being a citizen in the real sense. So therefore, we need to treat them like a child or a, like a criminal or all these other things that roughly means um, we look out for you because we don't think you can take care of yourself. You know, and of course, it always is for the benefit of the person looking after the person, never the person being looked after. Despite despite the rhetoric. Yeah. yeah, it's always like a legitimation of why they're doing something. It's never actually like an impetus for actually trying to help the person. Just like prison labor is helping them to build skills for when they're released from prison. Yeah, exactly. Like the same logics in place of, right. oh, we're helping them. And you're like, I was really sending someone to prison for an incredibly long period of time and teaching them no skills, giving them no autonomy, like kind of traumatizing them for a decade, really a great way of helping someone. Not to mention that you're profiting off of their labor the whole time because the constitution says they're allowed to be slaves if they're in jail. 
And most states now, you even pay for your own time in jail. So you leave owing the state money. (laughs) So it's just one of the things is like, these are legitimated that way, but any like even cursory look makes it pretty damn clear that there's no desire to help. Um, At least from those in like the elites. I think there are people who really want to help that have that same internalized paternalism. I think that's a lot of like the nonprofit sector or especially in homelessness, the social workers and people working in like soup kitchens and things like that. They do want to help, but I, I think they've internalized some of the same stereotypes about homeless folks as the folks who are trying to exploit them. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, um, I guess these this cognitive dissonance of of philosophy around it throughout the book, um, there are these contrasting terms that I think to somebody who's not paying a lot of attention might look like synonyms. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that you could talk about individualization as a uh, neoliberalist tool um, and personalization as kind of a kind of a tool to fight against that mentality. Yeah, that's a great. Um, So at the core of neoliberalism, I'm not sure how much y'all have chatted about it before. It comes up all the time, but at the core of it is it's an ideology that highlights that the market is the most efficient way of allocating things. And with that is also the most ethical and morally justified way of structuring the world. And so like the goal of the state becomes the entity that either creates markets for people to compete in or to make people engage in the market. Like, so like the Obamacare healthcare thing is a great example. Oh, you don't have insurance? Well, you have to go buy it from this insurance market. Now you're a consumer and we get to distribute healthcare through free market. Yes, right? <laughs> and like with homelessness, part of the reason, part of the analysis that they want to do is they want to take the person and then highlight all the individual failings that led them to being homeless. So to completely remove the structural impacts, the fact that like housing, even now in Flagstaff is like $1,500 for like a one or two bedroom at most in a small, relatively poor tourist town. Um, I don't even know what it is in Portland now. I don't want to know. (laughs) But like they avoid those. They avoid the fact that they've gutted all like welfare protections and social services and the goal is to individualize the problem. So being like, oh, why are you homeless? Let's go through the checklist. Addiction, anger, mental health issues, laziness. You know, so they start creating these categories of all the things that an individual can do that can make them homeless. And then the goal is to address those. Like, that's the problem. Um, the reason that these people are homeless under this logic is because they have addiction issues. So therefore, oh, we're just going to treat their addiction and they'll get out of homelessness without a kind of an understanding that a lot of people who become homeless have no addiction problems before they join this, enter the streets. And a lot of people even on the streets don't necessarily have addiction problems. Um, But if you get rid of that addiction problem, but you don't alleviate the reason they were on the streets in the first place, they're just going to fall back into that same cycle. Like when you're sleeping outdoors and it's cold and rainy, Drinking or drugs are a great way to get through the night, like as well as like ways of like 
dealing with trauma in a country that has no functioning healthcare system. So like the neoliberal approach always wants to focus on that individualization because they don't want to engage with the talks of systemic problems. They don't want to talk about why is housing so unaffordable? Why are people, why is poverty so high? Uh, they don't want to go into those. So they just want to like really strongly um, find fault in the individual to blame. And then from there, like treat it as, you know, okay, here's the things that are wrong with you. Now, if we fix these individual failings, you'll be no longer on the streets. Um, and that, so that's like the process of individualizing that I see in like how neoliberalism functions. Um, what I take is the, the idea of personalism comes from kind of an old um, activist group from the Great Depression, uh, the Catholic workers, um, who like are pretty much Catholic anarchists. And, you know, there's some things that I strongly don't agree with them on, like an abortion and homosexuality and all those kind of things. But as an analysis and as a group, they, they were super radical, militant, nonviolent anarchists who were, you know, acting pretty aggressively to deal with militarism and to deal with homelessness and to deal with like starvation and hunger um, from the Great Depression. They still exist. Um, and to them, the idea of personalizing is to treat each person as an actual person. So not have like a bunch of checklists that you're just going through to categorize, but get to know them as a human being and get to know the complexity of their story. Like if they do have addiction issues or anger issues, get to know them because the odds are those are rooted in deeper things, not just, you know, basic aspects. Um, and with that, to like not blame decisions on the reason that they're in a horrible situation, but to help them find like structural solutions to allow them to be a person and with that being able to make decisions. Um, so to me, like neoliberalism wants to individualize in a really dehumanizing way where they just want to treat people according to what they see as the symptoms or the like of their problems. Well, personalism really wants you to treat them as an individual. Um, at least in my experience with Food Not Bombs, like you hang out with the folks, you become friends, you get to know them. Like at the end of like a couple times doing it, you start to actually know the names and stories and lives of the other folks cooking, but also a lot of the homeless folks coming for food. And I think that that's a radically different approach from like a social work logic that has like a checklist cheat that you just check off all the problems that the system administrators need to fix in that person. And those two, uh, firstly, uh, the individualism connects with what you were describing as Teresa Gowan, I think, uses the term sick talk. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and individualism, as, as I remember, individualism and meritocracy are the two primary fallacies of white supremacy and neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, and especially meritocracy, um, which is related to individualism, but not the same thing, allows us to say if they're unhoused, uh, it's a consequence of their own actions um, mm -hmm. rather than a consequence of forces outside of their control. Am yeah. I understanding that correctly? Yeah, completely. Yeah. And that's the whole goal of it, right, is to let the system, systemic forces off the hook 
and instead put all the focus on the people on the streets so that when we talk about solutions, the solutions don't have anything to do with like changing the housing market, right? Because that would really hurt a lot of rich people's bottom line. And honestly, the housing market buttresses and, and heavily subsidizes the wages of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like if you, we really dealt with the housing crisis, the racial wealth gap would drop significantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And so they don't want to do those things because that ends up hurting a lot of people with a lot of power already. And so it's much easier just to blame the victim. Yeah. I mean, they see it all the time. Um, hell, we see it with every police murder, right? <laughs> you blame the victim. You go through their entire life story to find the reasons why we could somehow legitimate this, you know, police officer's violent assassination of someone in, a, in the community. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with homelessness. They're trying to do the same thing. Individualism and, and personalization, individualization and personalization seem like uh, macro and micro, uh, or, or at least uh, zooming out and zooming in. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's a way to make personalization normalized without mass grassroots involvement? Because it feels like in order for me to develop the empathy uh, and understanding of everybody as me being any the average person uh, really requires on the ground involvement. Whereas mm-hmm. individualization, I'm perfectly fine to just keep watching the news. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Like the way to become more engaged with like actually personalizing folks is to get to know them. And the way to do that is to be engaged in struggles on the street. Like, and you know, if you're, if you're even, even if you're doing stuff around like Black Lives Matter, you're going to start making connections to the homeless folks. You're going to start building like alliances and friendships. And also like as activists or people interested in political action, how do you find ways to also make it accessible for people who are living on the streets to be part of your movement fighting against gentrification, for instance, like, mm. like a gentrification struggle that is all house people is, is important, but it's missing a big segment of the people being victimized by gentrification. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that each and every one of us, at least I'm assuming most of the people you're listening to, we're all closer to being homeless than we are to being rich. Right. Um, at the end of the day, like how many months of no pay or of like a huge emergency do most of us have before we can't pay our rent? It's not like, even if you're doing all right, it's not much, you know? And I think that's part of it too. We don't want to admit that we're closer to that. Um, we don't want to admit that, you know, a couple bad emergencies in a couple shitty months that we could be on the streets as well especially because we've all internalized, that means that we failed. Right. Yeah. Right. So like, we don't even want to talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable. I guess. um, Yeah. I mean, the, the, the discomfort element is, is obviously uh, a huge, huge factor um, because again, you know, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? <clears throat> you know, I I, I, uh, I internalize that kind of thing day day in and day out. Like if I'm like doing something like 
wrong or whatever it's like oh like i totally mm-hmm. totally i totally failed like this means like you know what i mean like it's it's, totally. it's, it's insane again years <laughs> years of uh of of unlearning it uh both in and out of some of your classes sean and still to this still to this day i'm like oh man i don't know i, I don't know if i should take the day off work you know it means i'm like a i'm a bad co-worker you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think we all have that i mean i don't think there's any way around it Right. Because it's so socialized into us. It's kind of it's probably also unfair to expect people to not have that, Um, you know, without actually, you know, having movements that try to build different ways of seeing the world. Like it's kind of nutty to assume that we just assume people would be like, I don't hate using it because the way the right talks about it, but that people just magically become woke, you know, (laughs) You know, I hate that phrase, but it's like, that's kind of how a lot of people think like, oh, we should just all be like that. We should all understand all the trans rights stuff. It's like, well, no, this stuff is ingrained within us to be hostile to that. We have to, yeah. like, you can't just expect people to know it. Like, that's such a silly belief in my mind. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no pushback. Yeah. From me there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? How? You just learned about it a week ago. How are you lecturing me? For real. That's what's interesting, I think, to, to kind of contextualize this into punk. Dylan uh, was bringing this up a l- last time a little bit, that there is sort of a set of uh, sacred tenets in hardcore and punk um, that I, I personally subscribe to, I think, uniformly but more kind of like the way i subscribed to straight edge i was straight edge my whole life and then found out that there was a term for it and i was like oh this is like a convenient way to refuse things at a party without just sounding like a jerk every time Um, (laughs) so so the punk and hardcore ethics as they exist today happen to align with mine but i think a lot of them are sort of um uh check the box as you get in the door of the venue um, without a real dialectic around them, which which is a good recipe for creating safe spaces for people who need them, but it doesn't mean that these people are ready to really engage in dialogue about why they believe what what they believe. Yeah, totally. And with that, like, it's part of the, I think part of the whole identity stuff, like punk becomes an identity. And so you're like, cool, I'm anti-racist. I'm pro, I'm feminist, I'm pro trans rights, but they become not because you understand it or you have an analysis of how it works. It's just like, that's my identity. Oh my God. Yes. Right. And it's like, well, no, we need to actually have a discussion of why, right. We need to have an analysis of why we're, why we're anti white supremacy, why we're anti-patriarchal violence, why we're anti-like cis violence on trans folks. Like these are not just you check off a box and then you're cool, right? I mean, at least in my mind, like it's all like, and I feel like that used to be something that punk spaces were really all about was education aspect. There was always like, it was really common growing up for there to be people handing out zines about like critical issues, like, about like having presentations about political stuff in the middle of a show like you know that used to be kind of pretty common i think the last time i saw that recently was um in the fall i believe it was the fall maybe it was 
spring in in denver where they had a lot of tabling at this awesome. fest i went to uh particularly about what it would look like without police it was mostly anti-police um, that's really awesome like hell yeah but it was one of those things i think the last time i'd seen it before that it was a small show in tucson um uh, who was the band um i i can't remember who the band was but they had brought essentially a small library and people could just pay a dollar for a book or no nothing for a, pay what you will um and just as an english major like that's stuff was really exciting for me to see um i may have spent more time at there than in front of the stage um but yeah i think that an emphasis on education rather than um subscribing to the beliefs because you're a punk now um that's that's important yeah i think the the, the thing that always comes to my mind too is like i feel like in a lot of ways <laughs> We've all, it's like the scene in the Manchurian candidate where like they just like flip the switch. And like if you're into punk or hardcore or whatever, like you just hear a buzzword and you just like stand up and be like, oh, de defund the cops. And you're just like, what? The, what are you talking about? Do you have like most, I guess what I'm getting at is, is like we're just constantly going into these rooms full of people yeah. that, that believe X, Y, and Z. And like, I just, I hate to be this guy. Just like, I'm going to go with nine times out of 10, the everybody in every band that stands for these things has no comprehensive plan or any idea where to direct anger or action. It's just a, it's just a cultural signifier to literally get uh, the Twitter mob off your back if your band gets into any hot water. Totally. And I mean, I'd much rather like everyone uncritically fight to abolish the police than to support them. Like totally. that's pretty totally. damn obvious. But like at the end of the day, if you don't have it, like if there's not a focus on analysis and education and like, actually having a political space it means like there's a space then for it to be co-opted by the far right and there's no reason for people to understand well why is this white supremacist why am i what am i how is what i'm doing white supremacist right because they don't actually understand what how race what race is how race operates what white supremacy is and like i mean i, I don't ever want to compare the punk scene to like the new age scene but you see that in like the new age stuff with all the QAnon like new age bullshit right mm -hmm. no no it's the, you've all, you got your super hippie aunt who's also yeah. really into to QAnon, which is a weird horseshoe yeah but i mean i could totally see the same thing happening with a lot of punks yeah and not around the same stuff of like crystals and shit but around something else you know i, I mean i mean you know we, we could so save this one for another time, but I mean everything from everything from Krishna Gore to I think uh, 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 there's obviously the overlap to like instead of crystals, sometimes it's 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 CrossFit or fitness or other times. It's, so I mean, and like with anti-vaccine and anti-mask stuff, I've seen a lot of like punk folks really falling for some of the far-right narratives on this stuff. Um, yeah, like anarchy means not wearing a mask to protect people who are around you. Like... Right. I think that that's because, and here's the irony is that I think the right generally believes that people who are, are uh, wearing an anti-fascist action patch or something uh, really have a deep knowledge of what they're talking about. Like the, if, 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 
the left were as organized, half as organized as the right thinks it is. It'd probably be a whole lot more effective in creating political change. But there, I think there are two things preventing that. This sort of superficial, um, hot topic understanding where you can buy this aspect of your identity mm-hmm. without having to read Kropotkin or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, speaking of Kropotkin and Bakunin, the fact that a deep knowledge or understanding seems to, and I, this was one of the things I would hope you could comment on, seems to inevitably lead to enough infighting where progress becomes difficult. Absolutely. Oh, like the sectarianism? <laughs> well, like the International Workers' Party tried yeah. multiple times to, to create really substantial change and was abbreviated yeah. m- more than once because Marx and Bakunin couldn't get along. Uh, yeah. Marx and Lenin had different ideas of whether it should be gradual or revolutionary. Proudhon yeah. and Bakunin couldn't get along. Kropotkin didn't agree with Bakunin. Um, <laughs> and it's and this is what I mean. Like if if yeah. only the the left was organized and and uni, unilateral as as the right seems to think they are, um, there'd actually be a lot more progress than there currently is. Because right now it's mostly uh, kibitzing over whether you're vegan enough or <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Yeah, no, that's super good point. I mean, it's so difficult because I get why people don't want to read theory per se. It's not necessarily, I mean, I really like it. Um, I find it really enjoyable. I, I know, Dylan, you found it at least enjoyable for a while. Like there's reasons to yeah. like it, but, but in general, it's, it's, you know, it's not the most accessible like topic. Um, which is why I love people who popularize these ideas in other formats. Like, I don't know if either of you have ever read Margaret Killjoy's stuff. Um, no, but this is what I was thinking zines are especially effective yeah, at. She's a phenomenal, like, black metal musician and also does a lot of great science fiction fantasy stuff that is always rooted in kind of the intersection of anarchism and punk, you know, and just cool stuff. But like people who are able to popularize ideas or make them accessible is great. Um, but it becomes so difficult because theory is dense. It's difficult and it requires kind of conversations. The problem yeah. is you don't have that space or at least like a culture that pushes that. Um, you get what kind of Guy Debord and the situationist talked about around recuperation where it just becomes merely another identity that allows you to brand yourself in in a certain way and therefore a form of like way for capitalism to commodify yourself so punk becomes not a political thing but just another like profit making mechanism within the structures of capitalism Um, it just becomes a way for people to highlight their uniqueness in a brand way so that they could be on instagram and get the certain kind of following right yeah oh yeah and like, and so it's really difficult because theory is important. I really like it. I think it's really important, but it's so inaccessible, especially some of the older stuff because you're reading things 200 years old, right? And you're like, what? why do I care about peasants, <laughs> right? <laughs> we don't really have that many peasant structures in, in the U.S. But at the we're, same time... We're, we're starting to look at feudalism coming back, though. No. Oh, 100%. I, I think... I think neo-feudalism is a legitimate 
big likelihood for our future political arrangements. Yeah, I was also not to be like that guy. I was like literally also about to say that. Thanks, Evan. You can understand why folks don't necessarily want to read that stuff. Um, but that may, I mean, this, I don't know. It's a really difficult problem. Like, how do you fix this? Um, I mean, there's like, I, I, mean, I hope my, I try to make my book as accessible as possible. Um, I hope, I hope you all found it at least somewhat accessible, but it's difficult because there's very technical language and you're trying to say stuff very specifically and you can't, you know, and especially in academia, you have to justify it through the same language and lit sources that academia like values. Right. I, yeah, right. I, for example, I, you could not have cited uh, um, Killjoy uh, probably in your book and have it be seen as a legitimate. I would have to do like an analysis of their science fiction, right? And the, right, right. Which is totally great. But yeah, it would have to look differently. Um, which is also like an argument for why not to get academic publications, which is, I think, a legitimate one, right? But it, it's sort of in some ways class as somebody who considers himself an academic as well it's sort of inherently classist and 100 potentially racist and it's it's inaccessible like this book just came out in paperback which i'm really happy with because now it's actually like 20 bucks or something so you can humanly buy it but when it first comes out it was like 110 dollars because that's how they maintain the academic um publishing market Jesus, like, which is sort of a, it's sort of a catch twenty two because, uh, unless the goal is uh, esotericism, yeah, um, then you have to, you know, you're not going to sell a ton of these because your market is small, mm -hmm. because the number of people who can yeah. even have the tools to access it is small, um, mm -hmm. so you have to make it prohibitively expensive. Uh -huh. um, and to make your ends meet. And so, I don't know, Catch-22, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, my recommendation for anyone who's listening is there's great ways to pirate things. And I personally have zero problem with people pirating anything I ever do. But, like, if you ever have – tell people to go to, like, Sci-Hub does, like, a collection of academic articles that you could probably get most for free. Or, like, LibGen. You could get a large number of books, academic and not in like PDF or book form, ebook form for free, right? And so like there are like really cool, more anarchistic ways people are getting around it. Or I think ARG is another kind of free source. But I mean, again, now we're requiring, like it gets harder. Like, now you have to like search for it and find it and know the ins and outs of how to get access to free information. And so it's like, yeah, there's just all these barriers that are totally about classism and accessibility and all this stuff. Yeah, and and, uh, and this is fortunately a lot of these things are, I guess, more accessible than they were when Aaron Schwartz was doing his work to democratize the information yeah. in academia. Yeah, and I think for those who don't, I don't know, those who don't know him, he he was. How long did he get in prison? He committed suicide, didn't he? Yeah, 2013. Yeah, and but he got like an obscene amount of years in prison for, right. for giving away work that was behind paywalls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's really silly is academics don't make money off this stuff. 
Like I don't get paid to publish articles, right? The, yeah, so most of the time, if you just email the professor, they'll usually send it to you, I think. I, I, I'd be, if you, if I'd say like 95% of academics I know would. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. even radical academics, like just mm. like normal, non-radical academics who might not even study politics would probably be like, yeah, of course, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, it's the equivalent to uh, putting your demo up on Bandcamp. Yeah, yeah. You know? They're like, oh, you wanted that? Like, oh, fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, literally academics, we never get to talk about any of our stuff, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will, I guess, uh, uh, in the spirit of, yeah. of, of letting you talk about some more of your stuff, Sean, uh, one thing that I, I know uh, the people who do listen to me and Evan would be curious to hear your take on. Um, you, there's a, the section in your book, it's a, you, you referenced your conversation with, with the late Joel Olson at a bar mm. about the, the natural life cycle of, of <laughs> gentrification. Uh, would you uh, kindly share? Uh, that and kind of talk about it because um this is oh, this is the buzzword of not just the hardcore punk power violence community but i just think literally everyone of every background i can't go anywhere without uh, without talking about it with other with other people so. speak spe just to interject and to support what what dylan's saying r.i.p to the late great gabe mm -hmm. serbian um, yeah, when just today, right? Like yesterday. Yeah, at wow. least that's when I heard about it. Same. Um, but uh, his his band Headwound City, uh, which is uh, also shares members of Blood Brothers, yeah, 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 and and Justin Pearson mm -hmm. from the Locust, when they came to uh, perform in Tucson, when I was bouncing at this club down there, uh, first of all, nobody was there, which was a Great for me because I got to Total bummer, but I walked him down to the local co-op because we had time. And Justin Pearson had like a zine that he'd written about uh, gentrification and spent the whole walk down there talking to me about gentrification in Tucson, which was a highlight for me. But That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I have to also like highlight, like I grew up in San Diego and I came to punk a lot of them through justin's bands and knowing justin so you know so yeah it makes sense yeah 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 so yeah like i started this like that section with a conversation i had with my late friend joel olson who phenomenal academic anarchist activist amazing anti-racist um if any one of your people listening is interested in race, he has one of the best books I've ever read on it, The Abolition of White Democracy. It's a, All right, added to the list. It is such a classic. It's, it's, it's like the foundational text for people who want to be race traders, is the way I would think of it. <laughs> and it's, it's awesome. It's, it's literally, it's, it's groundbreakingly good. Like, it really is. Um, but we were chatting because we were both joking about how how gentrification seems to work in our lives. And we kind of noticed it almost always followed the same path of like, you know, first like a bunch of punks move into a poor area. They open up like squats and info shops and all these things because they're looking for a cheap place or a place where they can get access to a squat for free. And that tends to be these really low income areas. But 
these punks who are almost entirely white start to change the makeup of a neighborhood and it starts to become a location where all of a sudden more artists start coming in and finding loft spaces. Again, look, all of this is to find rent that they could afford, right? It's not like nothing malicious is going on, but then after a while enough art folks are there that all of a sudden it starts to turn into a very gay friendly neighborhood. So you start having like these just cycles of outsiders who are looking for spaces. And after a while, it just becomes then a hot commodity for the new urban professionals who are looking to like remove to the city and are looking for the cool neighborhood with all the coffee shops and record stores and stuff going on. And within a, you know, a, a 10 years, it goes from being like a, a black and Latino community to a mostly very affluent white community and everyone's kicked out. Like not just the, the people who are living there before the punks moved in, but most of them can't afford it. Most of the artists have to move to a new neighborhood. Like, so even like a lot of the gay community has to find a new place because they've been priced out. Right. And so all of a sudden this place that everyone wanted that was liked because of its acceptance of people who were different and these unique spaces and creative projects is now a sanitized gentrified space that looks no different than anywhere else with the same kind of housing developments and the same kind of stores and the same kind of everything, right? And that becomes effectively the cycle most of us have seen, I think, in most locations. Everywhere. And it's almost always that exact cycle, though. Like, like you can almost just see it as a, like, you're just like, oh, cool. It's now we're moving from the info shop scene to the to the art loft scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh oh, <laughs> vegan coffee shop with punk themed items on the menu. Like this can't be good. You yeah, know? I mean, we only have like five to six more years before all of us have to move. Like we right. know. <laughs> but I mean, I think the problem with gentrification is that everyone instantly blames the people moving in, right? Always. Which is easy to make sense of because they're the people you see. Yeah. You're being pushed down of a neighborhood. A bunch of new joggers right around your neighborhood. Of course, you're going to be like, oh, it's these joggers that are pushing me out. And in part, that's not wrong. And way higher rent, which allows everyone else to raise rent. I don't want to especially let the Silicon Valley folks off the hook for the ways in which, you know, high-tech, high-paid folks are ruining communities. But at yeah. the same time, like, it's not them who's doing the gentrifying, right? It's these developers, most of them who have no connection to the city, most of them who have tons of properties. Increasingly, more and more, banks are doing the gentrification and housing buying. It's, like, become, like, during the, during the pandemic, um, as people got concerned with the stock market, like wealthy people started to invest in housing in much the way they thought of as like stocks as like a speculative investment market. Like, yeah. And with that, like they're the people who are actually engaging in the economic pressures to gentrify. And of course, every city in this country actively is begging them to do that to all their neighborhoods because every city is wanting wealthier residents. So they have a higher tax base. So they can ta get more money for the city to do more things that they want to do. So even like those good liberals on city council want high housing values because it gives them the resources to like do whatever they want, expand bike lanes, expand public transit. Like 
they need resources. And a lot of them, that's the only way they can conceive of getting money is gentrifying, increasing housing values, increasing property taxes and bringing that money in. But that whole cycle just forces more and more and more people out. And so it's, that's, I, in my analysis, like that's the problem. It's this sense of um, corporations looking to maximize their money through housing, uh, cities looking to create an investment market for housing in order to increase the amount of money they're able to then use for um, uh, government services. And with that, like the federal government's complete defunding of urban um, cities and instead a redistribution of wealth to suburbs from Reagan on, all the way to um, the entire federal government having a sense to make housing the primary way that people generate wealth. Like most people, if you own a home, that's like 95% of your wealth. That's yeah. people's retirement plans even, is their house. <clears throat> and the fact is you can have affordable housing or you can have investment housing, but you can't have both. The more affordable you make housing, the less of an investment opportunity it is. Like those are just mutually exclusive things. You can't be like housing is affordable. And if you buy in, you'll get a 500% return on your investment. You can't do that. Like, and so no, anyone who owns a house doesn't want to actually see affordable housing done. No. It will effectively undermine their retirement plan, their net wealth, et cetera. And cities don't want to do that because almost all cities make most of their money off of property taxes. So if they do, if they actually create affordable housing, they undermine their own ability to bring in resources as a city. Like, so like the entire structure we've set has no way of dealing with the affordable housing crisis. And, and to me, that's why, like, it doesn't matter if you have a liberal or a conservative city. Yeah. You're going to end up making housing more inaccessible. Yeah. And there's no conversation well. about that. Like everyone just pretends like you could have magical affordable housing and no one, there's very little conversation about the way that our entire economic system is founded on housing being an investment and especially a way of protecting like the wages of whiteness, like white folks own houses at a much higher rate and then houses at a higher value. Right. I mean, so this is part of that like long-term historical subsidy to white people is increased housing costs. Like, and so it's really complicated. <laughs> Meanwhile, I feel like, I feel like I know that generally these sorts of things are rather short-sighted um, in terms of uh, just like the same reason education is constantly defunded is like the return on investment is 16 years down the line. Exactly. Um, so I, I know that they're probably not doing a ton of thinking about this, but what do you anticipate happens when we don't have a very substantial social safety net nationally. And this housing crisis forces more and more people to seek uh, either alternative housing, unhousing. Um, this is this is the thing that kind of wakes me up at 3 a.m. every day. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. I mean, I, this is where I have a lot of pessimism, especially just not seeing people mobilize on this. Like, hopefully as conditions get worse, we see more and more people actually organizing around like radical changes to housing policy or 
to our economic political system in general. Um, but the general sense is that neoliberalism has two ways of dealing with problems. One is to just create more market issues, which of course only really benefits those who are who have resources. Like markets don't work for those who are broke, right? They're not meant to. Um, and the other one is increased state violence. Like so, you bludgeon the heads of those people who are poor, and then you create market incentives to like create expand the freedom of the rich. Like that's all neoliberalism knows how to do. Like. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see increasing amounts of police violence directed at, like, even more so at, I mean, I, part of the reason I think we have seen around, like police violence is that as inequality grows under neoliberalism, like the racial wealth gap grows, everything, they don't have a solution. So the only solution is to increase militarized police presence mm, yeah. in neighborhoods. And I think that the same thing is going to happen here. There's not going to be a solution to it under the way we currently imagine our political system. The only solution they have is increased police repression. Um, and I think the question becomes, do people organize then against this police repression in certain ways? Can there be movements? Like, can we avoid that kind of infighting stuff to actually create movements that could change the ways that we're kind of living? And mm -hmm. that becomes the big issue. And Right now, it doesn't look very likely, but at the same time, like if you had asked me if there was going to be a massive uprising around a, a killing of a black man in 2020, I would have thought no. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's you never know. Like, I think I think people in general, like, I don't know if you have noticed this. Most people are tired and angry. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I've I, noticed that <laughs> across the board. Like, it doesn't matter. And so. The question is, what will light the fuse and what direction will the fire move? Will it move towards that far right or towards alternatives to like fascism? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a harder mm -hmm. question to know. Because um, the state would much rather have it move towards fascism than it would towards any form of like liberation. Yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with Radley Balco's work? A little bit. I haven't read a ton, but I, I've read some of his stuff on um, police policing. Yeah, right. It just made me think of that. Yeah. His, his book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. Um, we should have all that. We should clarify for our listeners. He, he is a huge libertarian. That Rise of the Warrior Cop and his other articles are very valuable. But uh, yeah. uh, please do not go too far down that rabbit hole. I didn't know that about him. I've only read Rise of the Warrior Cop. Yeah, yeah. It was you know, he's yeah. a libertarian who occasionally, like a broken clock, completely gets something right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I really wanted to throw that warning out there for... The, person, because, the, yeah, so. the other person I recommend is Christian Williams. Oh, yeah. Um, Our Enemy in Blue and other stuff like that. He, his work is great. Um, and it's similar. I mean, he, I mean, it's really good analysis of of police. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Balco, I mean, Balco has done a lot to help us understand and, and written a good amount of stuff on the increased militarization of the police. Like, and that's something where even the libertarian right, when they're not swayed into fascism, which seems to be an increasingly common thing, um, come to understand. Well, it's, it's yeah. sort of the cognitive dissonance of having a blue stripe next to a don't tread on me sticker. Exactly. Like, who do you think's doing the treading? <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. 
The treading is not being done by the disabled trans person down the block. <laughs> Speaking of, was, when you were talking about the fuse, I wanted to come to um, you know, a part of your book um, some, um, in terms of like mobilizing forces. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you you use to distinguish between Marxism and, and um, anarchism is the inclusion of the lumpen proletariat yeah um and in particular the uh, kropotkin i think's use of the lumen proletariat as a mobilizing force in terms of um uh, uh inspiration for motivation um I, I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit and in terms of today's socio-political landscape who's the lumpen proletariat how is that a mobilizing force yeah, so in general Marxist theory, um, everyone kind of knows like the general analysis of, or most people generally know the analysis of like bourgeois and proletariat, like the owners of capital and then the people who have to sell their labor to work in factories. Um, and with that though, Marx also creates a bunch of different categories or highlights different categories, like the petty bourgeois, so like the independent like lawyer or doctor. Um, but also things like the lumpen proletariat, which are the outcasts of society, the people kind of who don't even have the ability to sell their labor in factories, right? So the homeless, the criminal classes, um, the peasants, all these folks who are outside the industrial political economy. Um, and in general, Marxism always makes this claim that the most revolutionary class will be the proletariat because the people in the factories are are the ones who like if they change the world in their image are going to transform the world um but anarchists have from like bakunin on been critical of that highlighting that well if you work in factories and you're getting paid a factory wage you actually are kind of more connected to the system than others right you might not be doing great but you have something to lose if you're a factory worker and you lose your job, now you're part of the lumpen proletariat. Like you still have, you still can be like, you still have further to fall in a, in a sense. And so like the anarchist analysis of the lumpen proletariat is the revolutionary, the class or the class that is most willing to start shit is going to be the one that has nothing left to lose. It's going to be the people who are pushed out, who aren't kind of, worried about losing a decent paying job that allows them to pay rent because they are living on the streets already maybe or who aren't like concerned with you know a cut to minimum wage because they're not even in the waged economy they're selling drugs or doing sex work like under the table um and so the anarchist claim is that these folks are the folks who will be more radical and they'll be the ones who push much further in breaking the current way the status quo is set up um, and I, I personally uh, adhere to that. Like, I, I think that especially now the people who are most radical are, are the ones who are the people forced out of the system, the people who are, who don't have much opportunity or sense of optimism that through the general way the economy is working, that they'll quote unquote, get the American dream, right? Those are the folks who I think are the ones who are, are kind of the powder keg that, they're the, like, in many ways, they're like the canary in the coal mine, too, like to use all the metaphors I can think of. <laughs> but like, they're the ones who are experiencing the most horrific aspects of capitalism. 
like they're the ones that more and more every one of us is being pushed more and more to that kind of position of barely being even in the wage economy um of being barely being able to like pay rent and survive like we're increasingly all moving more towards them and as such like they're they are they are the people who i think are going to inspire action um and with that, like I, with that, I don't think it's necessarily surprising that a lot of the political uprisings have emerged, for instance, amongst urban Black communities that are, for the most part, completely removed from any prospect that the political system or the economic system is going to lead them out of where they're at, right? It's people who have zero sense that they're just going to get a job and be able to buy a house and then be nor like have a normal life because this entire system's been structured to exclude them, right? So it's not surprising that they're the ones when they that where a lot of this kind of um, ignition starts. And it's also not surprising then that we're seeing more and more young folks who are feeling similarly kind of building alliances. And when they see that, they're going in the streets in solidarity because increasingly more and more of us, I think, are feeling more lumpen proletariat than we do as like general proletariat. We don't feel, we're not bought in <laughs> as much as, as much as like our parents' generation was. Each one of us is, I think, more in the belief that we could end up closer to being homeless or whatever, or who knows what, like with, with climate change. But I think a lot of folks are increasingly just completely not buying into the entire premise of the system. And I think COVID helped also undermine that. Like we all see how broken everything is now. Um, but like, so yeah, to me, I think the anarchist analysis of the lumpen makes just a ton of sense. It seems to me like that. And as we see like a further lumpen proletarization of our population, um, as we all are like having to do hustle work as the only way to survive, which <laughs> in a sense, the lumpen, like in, a, in the Marxian sense of lumpen proletariat, that hustle work is lumpen work. Oh, you mean the gig economy? Yeah, the entire yeah, just how it's I was just how it's marketed as like a yeah postmodern uh, individualist. Uh, that's how it's marketed when in fact it's just. Uh, exactly what you're describing as yeah. people doing sex work through OnlyFans is yeah. yeah like that's not that's not proletarian like industrial work mm -hmm. I think that is literally geographies of survival I mean they could be way better than some of the other jobs and all that but it's also they're tiring they're precarious there's a lot of bullshit with it um, it's so interesting to see gig economy as this hashtagged uh thing in in you know uh new york times or yeah Bloomberg or anything as this as this cool millennial <laughs> zillennial rebranding instead of like this dystopian uh thing where the majority of the population are are hustling to get by totally it's the same thing with like i saw a story recently where they were talking about the financial ingenuity of millennials as like people are collectively buying homes together. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. When you can't afford a home, right. like, like don't like you're selling this as like, it's like some new financial ingenuity. No. <laughs> yeah. The small, the small house boom. Isn't that quaint? Yeah. It's like, yeah, that has nothing. That's like, they're living in a rental shed. And it's the same thing as like this sort of, 
semantic uh, white supremacy of here's this is something that we've been calling ghetto for a long time. And now that mm -hmm. white people are doing it on Pinterest, it's a life hack. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Or like now that we have legalized weed, which I'm very happy that we have finally moved on some of that, like all of a sudden it's now a really big corporate interest and there's making a ton of money when it's like, yeah, the people who've been doing this for the entire time have been just still further excluded from it. Right. Yes. And yeah. now, they're, now they're even more vulnerable. Like I know so many people used to go do trimming of pot illegally in California before it was legalized. And it was like a way for them to make enough money to survive, right? Yeah. Now yeah. it's like a minimum wage job. Yeah. It's been privatized, yeah. 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 And so it's just, yeah, all this stuff. They're like really funny ways of rebranding like dystopia as financial ingenuity. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the cherry on top of all of it is the increase in like these like films or like miniseries about like the founders of some of these horrible like gig work companies like there's like the battle for, for uber with like joseph gordon levitt oh really it's like the, yeah and then like i think uh there there's another one called like the founder which is like all about elizabeth holmes and her fucking farce of a company in theranos uh it's like it's just oh, like yeah, I've heard that yeah, one. Yeah, it's just it's just it's just the cherry on top of all of it. It's just like it's just control. You know, again, if you know, language is the vehicle for shaping all political reality. If this is a fun new side hustle and there's all these fun new things you can watch on Netflix about the founder of the company you drive around and get people pad thai for, then yep. we can somehow make this uh, all feel like it's not nearly as dystopian as it actually is. Oh, completely. I mean, it's the same with like I hate Elon Musk worship. Like it's sure, sure. the easiest thing in the world. But like I'm, one of the things I work on with a friend is stuff on outer space stuff because we're fascinated by attempts to privatize space flight. Like it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. Like, I read an interview with Elon Musk and his, poly his idea was, hey, not everyone's going to be able to afford to get to Mars who wants to go there for work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use some of my money and I'll loan it to them and they'll just work it off working on my, in my company <laughs> on Mars. They're like brilliant. And I'm like, wait, so indentured servitude, you just, right. you just Columbus indentured servitude. <laughs> like, and people are treating you like you're a brilliant man. It's like, no, this is, first of all, it was horrible then. And you're not even doing anything new. Like, <laughs> um, I, I yeah. just He's, like the U S has done with central America, who's still, paying yeah. back debts from when we helped them develop their nations. Exactly. Like, it's just... I, honestly, you know, we, we just... One of us needs to get on Shark Tank and just pitch slavery and watch all of them fund it. Oh, I mean... That's, if, like, basically where we're at at this point. With all this. If anyone here has ever seen, like, Sorry to Bother You, amazing. Oh, yeah. But, like, his analysis, the claim that, like, a equivalent of slavery for Amazon would form, you're like, yeah, no, that's fair. That's <laughs> and then they're like, I don't want to. I mean, it's out long enough. I don't care about spoilers, but like, <laughs> but when they're like genetically modifying people to become like more better, like physical laborers, I'm like, yeah, I could see that. I mean, that is already the tip yeah. of the iceberg. There again, just, this is this is the fitness geek in me. For for it starts with. It's already started. I, I really, I, I'm, I'm waiting for you to start talking about soy boys, Dylan. 
Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's old Dylan the Libertarian again. Um, but yeah, uh, it's already starting uh, the increase in 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 actors and actresses who need to take things like TRT to get insanely huge past the point that like that a human who's like in their late thirties or forties can can get. Think of all the Avengers body types when they take their shirts off in, in films. So I mean, like again, the the film's critique of like let's just keep let's just keep pumping people full of stuff so they can work uh at a higher capacity um it's already happening in all of in in uh at the highest level of cinema and at the lowest levels of the fitness industry these are already taking place yeah you've seen the clips of like gold medal olympians from like 40 years ago versus now right exactly dude but i can only imagine it's bonkers yeah I'm not a huge sports person, but watch any sport. And you'll like if you grew up watching anything and then you go to like football now, which I don't recommend for anyone, but if you <laughs> like their ma- I mean their their size of them and the speed of the speed of the players is like not human. Yeah. And <laughs> then imagine Babe Ruth uh, trying out for major league baseball right now. Babe Ruth was get, would get his ass kicked by every 15-year-old from the Dominican Republic, okay? Like, he was in ship shape for the 30s. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. But, yeah, so, yeah, the, the, the modifications are already yeah. well well underway. Um, so. Yeah, and, I mean, and the part of this is, like, as cities increasingly have to beg corporations to, and other, like, wealthy folks to get any resources – I mean, this is where that neo-feudalism idea comes in because these corporations increasingly have more power and these billionaires have more power and there's no democratic like control there. Like if Elon Musk wants to do something, he could just spend money. But there's no conversation about, well, what's an important thing for us to spend the money on? It's just whatever he feels he wants to. Or like Bill Gates, who's done a ton of some good stuff and a lot of really bad stuff with his like charity work. And it's because even if, even the good stuff is like, well, it's still you making the decision instead of asking people what they need or want. Until they get a seat in the UN, then they'll be regulated appropriately. (laughs) I mean, it's really a mess. Like, well, I guess uh, with that being said, uh, one thing that I did want to really make sure I, I asked you about, Sean, because this is something that we did. Uh, we did promise the like yeah. four people, four people who <laughs> who told who we told that we were going to do this episode. Um, there is, uh, 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 I guess, solutions feels like a strong word with the homelessness yeah. crisis in this day and age. But uh, talk talk to us both about you know, hey, what what can not just what can other hardcore and punk kids do to, to fix it, but literally what can anybody who happens to listen to this podcast do to try to make uh, conditions better for your homeless uh, neighbors? I mean, I think when it comes down to it, um, it's, first of all, understanding the folks who are houseless in your neighborhoods are part of your community. Starting from that premise of like, if you're doing community work, if you're doing community activism, if you're doing community support, you're doing mutual aid to help each other like these folks are just as much of your community as any other neighbor right and so the first thing is to treat them as an actual member of your community like and have them involved in these processes like don't treat them which is how the state wants us to do is like 
just people are pushed out or like just natural parts of the environment, like a park bench, right? That's kind of how they want us to treat these folks as just not really human. Um, but at the end of the day, like the biggest things that those in power are scared of, and I think you see this all the time, is broad cross racial cross like social class-esque organizing around stuff so like i think one of the reasons we've seen such a harsh backlash for instance against black lives matter is that it was the most cross-racial protest movement around race issues in the u.s way more so than the civil rights movement and that scares the crap out of those in power um the same thing with homeless folks like if you live in a city um with a large homeless population, um, if you're doing political organizing around police stuff, around housing stuff, um, building those alliances with the homeless members of your community, as well as like building alliances with the black and Latino and other folks in your Asian community members who are being forced out, the more these alliances come together and the broader they are, the more those in power actually are quite scared. Um, and then the last thing is we need to understand that one of the main things about urban politics is about space. And also with that, like perceptions of space, every mayor and every police force wants the city to look sanitized. Yeah. And so part of what it is also is to first of all, be okay with kind of the, like the uncomfortableness of a city that is, that does not hide these things, does not hide the victims of capitalism, does not hide the degradation of it in like safe areas, um, but to instead put a lot of the pressure on tourist areas in cities. Like the way to get city, the city officials, even like the good ones, effectively the incentive structure for them is to always cater to the tourists and the wealthy members of this, of the city. Those are the people who all the incentive structures make every political official want to work with them. So how do you do it? You need to roughly politically target those communities. Do not let them get comfortable, right? Create the tension where the political leaders have to say, am I going to like, not care about the residents who live in the city, or am I going to cater to tourists who are upset that there's a homeless encampment near this like park that people want to go to. Right. And so like part of the big thing is to reclaim space and reclaim it for the people who live there in kind of warts and all sort of way. I mean, one of the things I like about homelessness is it is inherently very public. And so like homeless folks, I mean, hell, just hearing how people talk about like Portland, right? And the housing crisis in Portland has gotten way worse. Like it's really noticeable there now. But like there's one way of dealing it with, which is to try to make these people not be visible. And that's like the worst way of doing it. Instead, what the main thing is they need to be visible. Their allies need to be made visible. Those in solidarity need to be made visible. And that visibility needs to be put in places that make the city feel uncomfortable. Like in my sense, like, so the goal is to make those tourists, to make those wealthy people really uncomfortable so that they put pressure on the politicians. And that then forces the politicians to not be able to do this bullshit thing where they say, we really care about this community and then not do anything. Or we're really consider concerned about police violence, but do nothing to reform the police or, or, get, or change anything, right? 
you want to force them to take a stance that doesn't allow them that wiggle room to just be in the middle and not like really do something like in my mind, that's like the main things to do. And as you do that, like one of the things I notice is cities tend to overreact. So there's going to be police violence, there's going to be arrests, but that then also galvanizes people and radicalizes them and brings more people in. Like the worst thing to do is to just kind of imagine that you could do this on your own or that politics is something that you do on your own. Yeah. Like the worst thing about the internet and social media is a sense that like social media is a form of politics. Like it can be, it can be like a tool to help, but at the end of the day, like virtue signaling or signaling in general doesn't do much. Right. Like the main thing is to just claim space and really claim like what you want and kind of do it collectively with as many people as you can who agree and not worry as much about, Oh, does this seem pragmatic? Like my sense is right now, the world is really any pragmatic solution isn't a solution. Like I'm at the point now with like climate change, with a lot of these things where the most utopian val uh, uh, position to hold is pragmatism, right? <laughs> the system is just not working. To claim, oh, well, we just need to work within the system is more utopian than any anarchist proposal in my mind. Like, there's zero chance of that working. <laughs> um, like, so I, I think like part of it is to like get away from some of that internalized pragmatism and liberal sense of following the correct path, which is something that punks should be okay with. Like, like that's the one thing that punks should be fine with is first of all, being willing to take up space, to be dirty, to, to not give a shit what those in power are saying, to not kind of police each other and responsibility and like language stuff. Right. <laughs> like that should be like one of the things that the punk folks should be totally already there on. Right. Yeah. And, but it then just about, opening it up, not being like cliquish and siloed and not like being that holier than thou bullshit or like cool punk points kind of thing, but to actually like try to build friendships with folks in your community. Um, like, and actually do it in a, a way that's not, you know, cheap political organizing, but just because mutual aid stuff, you know, you're living in your neighborhood, support each other. Get to know your neighbors. Like if, if your neighbor is being evicted, get out there and help them, even if you don't know them very well, right? Like as more and more we build that community, I think the more we have the ability to actually make places livable and actually kind of enjoyable to be in. Um, but that's kind of my preaching moment. <laughs> no, no, that's that's uh, that's why we wanted to have you on. So yeah, I, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing yeah. this. Yeah. Um, to wrap, to kind of wrap up on a lighter note, you know, because again, a yeah. lot of our a lot of our episodes have been much more focused on on music, but we'll wrap up with with a little bit of music talk on this one. I asked you, uh, I think, it, just to bring a band you think is underrated or under discussed to the conversation. Does does anybody come to mind? I mean, it's so hard to like know who's necessarily underrated. Like one of the more recent bands that I've been super into that I haven't heard too many folks talking about though. I think they just were putting out an al just put out an album on epitaph. So I might be wrong, but is soul glow. Oh, okay. Heck yes. I think they're, I think they're just fucking great. And they're doing some really innovative new stuff that I haven't heard other people doing. 
like, and I don't know like how big they're getting. Um, and the other one is like Fade Em All. I don't know if you've heard them, but both of them are like black punk, more black punk bands. Um, but Fade Em All is also really good. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's hard to know necessarily what is or isn't the big stuff right now. Um, if we're going classic though, like, man, I, I have always thought that bands like Rudimentary Peni are so underrated. Mm-hmm. So much better than most of the shit around the same time. Um, yeah. And just completely, like, no one talks about them as much. <laughs> you know, they, they have a weird cult following in the, in the U.S. You see the patch. Yeah. You see the patch constantly. I see the t-shirt in almost every yeah. show I go to. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, like, you know, again, like, Nick Blinko's got a few books out. He's starting yeah. to he's starting to do music again. At His least art is really cool. Yeah, and but yet, uh, it's interesting in these... Uh, because, again, the, the, the new zine for hardcore yeah. and punk is the podcast that's slowly becoming yeah. the norm. I, they're not discussed very, very often, despite yeah. having all of the roots and all of the things that I think would make people want to talk about a band today. Everything from mental illness to, uh, again, anarchist-style yeah. uh, leanings. And, uh, yeah, not discussed at all. And they were kind of like, I think their first stuff was still produced by, like, the members of Crass. So it's like they have that lineage that goes all the way back. Yeah. But, like, so many bands that I think are way worse. Like, I don't know why anyone cares about the Exploited. Like, like (laughs) never understood that. But, like, the fact that more people know who that band is, it seems travesty to me. I, You know, we talked a little bit earlier about how legitimate subcultures become commodified and branding. And The the Exploited has one of the best branding strategies out of any band ever. Maybe maybe only rivaled by Black Flag and Suicidal Tendencies. Right? Maybe only. Like, No, I don't understand it, though. Like, I mean... There's a lot more Black Flag songs I actually like. I mean, same. I like. I like. You know what? The only exploited record I like is is uh, the one that came out. I think it came out in the in like the early '90s called Beat the Bastards, where like it's like Waddy and like a whole new band, and like they just like play hardcore. And you can tell oh. like he didn't write any of the music. Someone else was like, "Trust me, the kids are gonna love this." That's awesome. I have not heard that one. That sounds yeah. great. Beat but the yeah. bastards. Beat the bastards is awesome. The only thing that obviously the the, the thing where you get in hot water or you can I, I've made some people very upset when I mentioned like hey remember when you tried to start a band with some guys with screwdriver and everyone's like shut the fuck up don't you talk oh, about oh I didn't even know happened. that either oh man that's it happened in 2018 I mean, I thought, that's not a surprise they've always had a weird vibe to me that made me think that they would if anyone would kind of end up on that side. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I I made uh, I made I I I made some people uh, while I was at a festival in the UK big mad with that one. Good, (laughs) that that is completely unacceptable. Like I don't know who thinks that's okay. (laughs) I I didn't think I was being provocative. I was just like, didn't that guy just like start a band with uh, some fools from Screwdriver? And they were like, okay, that's what a bunch of PC liberals want you to think. And I was like, whoa. You're like, that's true then. So I was like, okay, so that happened. (laughs) That's there's no evidence that will make me feel more correct in what I said than that reaction. <laughs> yeah. yeah that was... I, don't, I don't know. Like maybe you all can tell me is, is soul glow getting can any, any big. They're getting there. Uh, it's they're kind of a, finally. They're um, so good. Holy they're amazing. And they came out with like 
two primarily hip hop EPs as as kind of in betweens or or um, yeah uh, palette, like palate cleansers or aperitifs for this <laughs> most recent LP, which is it's so uh, everything I wanted. Philly is doing a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, I mean Philly Philly's regularly doing some cool. There's like a lot of cool stuff going on. I, I actually wore a soul glow shirt to my I'm a middle and high school teacher and I wore a soul glow shirt to school on Friday. Um, Did anyone know who they were who they were? No. Uh, <laughs> but it featured a bunch of proud family characters. Uh, like it was three of the gross sisters from Proud Family and the All white right. character. And it's just, uh, so I got Proud Family comments and I love the Proud Family, especially this new series. So I'm down for that. Yeah, I mean, I honestly feel like there's some really good stuff coming out now. Some of it in the punk or hardcore genre. I think a lot of what I'm finding more interesting right now is the stuff that is bringing in other styles of music and influence too. Like, mm -hmm. I think one of the things I love about Soul Glow is they're a straight up damn good, like thrashy, like noisy punk hardcore band and then they have like these really awesome hip-hop and and like reggae soul beat and beat kind of influences in like, terms of like throwing out the recipe book they're possibly the best one doing it right now yeah Maybe i mean they don't care who puts them in what category yeah. um and yeah it's very it feels very genuine very angry mm-hmm and and just I haven't gotten to see them yet, but also just like, a t I imagine just a ton of awesome. Like whenever I listen to a good punk band, it's one of the things where you can imagine the chaos of the show mm -hmm. being like, oh, hell yeah. Like I could totally see people like hanging from a rafters here kind of thing. I also feel like that band is probably going to do a lot to turn new people onto hardcore. Yeah. Because it's got this eclectic uh, uh, set of influences. Yeah, I mean, the other one, I mean, maybe just because of Gabe's passing, it's always worth highlighting all the Locust and Locust offshoot bands. Is I don't think ever quite getting necessarily enough attention for how yeah. much they've helped. Like Our the first episode, I mentioned some girls. Great um, band. Like, Retox, Rat's Eyes. Yeah. Like, see, Secret Fun Club. Can't forget about them. Yeah, yeah. All, all um, Leather. I mean, hell, even going back to like Swing Kids and yeah. um, The Struggle. I mean, yeah. all great bands, like just across the board, great bands. And even like, um, is it Dead Cross, the new one that they like, the other? Yeah, yeah. Um, they're solid. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine them not being solid with their lineup, but. Yeah, it's a crazy lineup. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's just interesting who gets the big, you know, when I see people wearing like casual t-shirts or stuff like that, I'm always just like, wow, how are they big? And uh, <laughs> so many of these other bands that I feel like are just doing better, more innovative stuff and have been for like way longer. Yeah. And the, 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 the worship of all the old gods never yeah. leaves this subculture. It's something again, another oh. huge reason why we wanted to do this podcast. Cause yeah, I, I, yeah, I am exhausted are, with it. Some of those old dudes are cool and they deserve like respect, but yeah, like I also don't like how much 
folks seem to highlight it's like because as it becomes more and more of a genre there's less and less like sense of experimentation with a lot of folks that's what i like about soul glow same like that is to me what makes them like a band listening to is just the fact that like you said they're throwing out the rule book and that's kind of what i want punk to be like throw away these rule books like do crazy shit like have fun <laughs> that should be the goal yeah <laughs> no see that's actually not the, the goal is to no. get a blue check mark next to your punk band's name oh. actually that's that's the goal well then then yeah yeah you should you should just do another dead kennedy cover yeah <laughs> yeah yeah who I also really like, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, no shit talking get Dead Kennedys, but because they're great. <laughs> I don't know that I can add to that. I had some some underrateds in mind, but I yeah. I like to leave it on that. Let's. I uh, I I feel like Soul Glow uh, is a better substitution for what I had in mind. Yeah. No. Me too. That, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah. Sean, thank sincerely, you. thank yeah. you so much for coming on and helping us been, out. This has been a lot of fun. Like, I, like, yeah, let's let's chat more. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna. I was just about to ask you that. Put putting you on the spot again. Will will would you like to be a, a guest for another another oh. difficult topic? Hell yeah, anytime. Yeah, I, Hell. There were so many things I had as things I wanted to talk about, and then was realizing that those, those were complete uh, different episodes so yeah i'm eager to eager to talk again there's like and and also like there's if you all want i could try to get you some other folks there's a lot of punk academics like who are heavily still involved in the genre and like influenced by it who are doing some cool work like there's do way it. more punks in academia than people think yes um, let's let's do it i think it's because none of us are good at nine to five jobs and so what other job can you get where you don't really have a boss, you could do what you want. <laughs> like these kind of things. Like we all suck at work. So we ended up in academia. For real. For real. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. And I think that's the that's why I stayed in academia. And we Sean, you remember I was yeah. I, we saw each other every day for like six years straight. Uh, <laughs> it was nice. I missed that in many ways. Oh uh, dude, I I uh I I miss it especially after i left school and like start i was like i was like it'll be fine like working won't be that bad and like i was just like oh holy shit this is way worse than i could have <laughs> ever imagined it being yeah work really sucks yeah yeah i miss i miss flagstaff uh, i miss seeing you every day i miss uh, all the people that yeah. we used to do all the grad seminars with and all the all that uh, all that lefty bullshit I miss all yeah. of it it's fun i know yeah. But Portland's nice too. It's been a, it's a, it's been a, it's been a nice change. I had to get out of Phoenix, man. I was getting cooked. I, I don't, I don't understand how people live in Phoenix. I, I, I you know what? <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna see everybody leave in Phoenix, whether they like it or not, within our lifetime. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's already starting because the first water restrictions taken place this year. I knew it. Yep. I mean, dude, before I moved out of Phoenix, like me and the person I moved with, who told me not to name any not not to name on the podcast uh i was like uh, i was like oh there we're gonna run out of water we gotta go like you know <laughs> yep <laughs> phoenix will be like the first city i think in the u.s that is completely unlivable because of climate change that's gonna be the mad max city yep 
That will be the first one hit with it. Fuck. Well. Yeah. All right. right. Well, hey, this is. This has been this has been Politicor. Y'all know y'all know what to do. If you have any any ideas for future episodes or anything you want to hear Dr. Parson speak about more, uh, his book is available on I'm pretty sure every website that sells books. Um, yeah. Try not to use Amazon. Use Powell's if you can. Totally. Um, but Sean, so thanks again, and uh, yeah, you know, we'll I'll talk to you soon, my friend. I, I love you and miss you every day. Yeah. Love y'all. Love you too, Dylan. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a good one.